And Father, as we come now to your word, we pray, speak to us. Open our ears to hear. Open our eyes to see your son. Grant us faith to believe what we see in your word and hear from it. Sanctify us, we pray. Stir us up with zeal and the fear of the Lord. Refresh us by thy word and by this fellowship, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 53. If you need a seat, there are some seats up front here, so please don't be shy. Don't make your way up front. Uh, if you're a member of the church and you don't mind coming up front so other folks don't feel any embarrassment in having to come up front, come on up front, and then they can quietly take the seats in the back if you want, or if you would be embarrassed, take where you are. <laughs> Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 53. If you're new to the Bible, when I say Mark 14, I'm, the chapter 14, that's the big number on the page. And when I say verse 53, that's the small number on the page. So Mark, Mark 14, verse 53. One of the most common fears known to man is the fear of rejection. God made human beings to exist in relationships. We are social creatures by design. So the fear of being separated, rejected, isolated, alienated, that fear really impacts us, doesn't it? I mean, the, the fear of rejection shows up when he wants to ask her out, but he's scared. The fear of rejection can go with us to the job interview. Palms get clammy. Mind races in anxiety. It can even cause us not to apply for the job. The fear of rejection might keep us from meeting new people or going to that social event. Though something in us wants to be there. And the fear of rejection can keep us from sharing our thoughts or sharing our needs even. And as a result of the fear of rejection, we develop strategies for coping. We try to deal with it in various ways. So sometimes we might become phonies. We construct an entire false and sometimes elaborate identity so that people can't see the real us for fear of rejection. We might become people pleasers. We might become the kind of people that just go along with everything that everybody says because we don't want to speak our own mind. We don't want to take our own position for fear that they might reject us. Or we might just become really passive, ignoring our needs and trying not to be seen, trying not to make a fuss. I mean, no one wants to be rejected, do that. Hate that fear. I mean, the, the one thing that's worse than the fear of rejection is the actual feeling of rejection. Right. We hate how rejection keeps us from things, keeps us from people, keeps us from experiences that, that we do intuitively know are good and right and pleasurable. 
Now, one of the hard things about life, beloved, is that there is no way to live life without the risk of rejection. There really isn't. And one of the greatest and most freeing things to discover in life is that we are not alone in this fear of rejection. Not only is it common to man, but our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ faced rejection. When the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus has become for us a, a perfect high priest because he has been tempted in every way that we have, one of the things that includes is this fear even of rejection, this experience, actually, of rejection. So we have a Savior who is familiar with us, who knows us, who knows even our fears and has had even the experience of the things that we fear. And he suffered rejection precisely so we would have acceptance through God. In our text this morning, we return to the Gospel of Mark. We were working our way through this book before um, I went on sabbatical. And we worked our way all the way up to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. Just by way of a, a brief and general review, you'll know that the Gospel of Mark is one of the four Gospels in the Bible. It's one of the what's called synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That fancy word, synoptic, means basically to, to with, sin, that's why in, optic, see, to see together. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of see Jesus' life together and tell the story in much the same way. Mark's main goal in writing the book is to show that Jesus is the Son of God. But hanging over that issue throughout the Gospel of Mark is this question, what kind of Son of God is Jesus? What's really meant by that? And so Mark shows us in, throughout the book various ways in which Son of God has unique meaning with regard to Jesus. He is the kind of Son who has authority over diseases. He is the kind of son who has authority to forgive sins. He's the kind of son of God who has authority to command demons. He's the kind of son who has authority to teach and to preach God's word. He has, in fact, authority to lay down his life and to pick it up again. In our text, we're going to see that. that Jesus is precisely this kind of son who has come to the world to lay down his life. And to pick it up again for our salvation. He's come to Jerusalem for the last time. It's the time of Passover. He has been betrayed by Judas and captured by the Jewish religious leaders. Mark chapter 14 verses 1 and 2 tells us that those religious leaders were, had been plotting to find a way to entrap him and capture him and kill him. And in the text this morning, that plan that is in motion is coming to fruition. In our text, Jesus is on trial. And really, the trial is about this same question. Is Jesus the Son of God? Maybe the one man in all of history who's never been put on trial for who he is. As we study Mark 14, 53 and 72, we'll see what the writer of Hebrews tells us again, that he is a, a high priest who identifies with us. He faces rejection. We're going to see rejection in two ways. Number one, he's rejected by the religious leaders in, in verses 53 to 65. He's even rejected by his own disciples in verses 66 to 72. 
we had a main point for the sermon. You might think of it this way. The Lord suffered rejection for us and for our, our acceptance with God. He suffered rejection for us and in our place for our acceptance with God. Mark 14, beginning of 53, verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself in the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him. But their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to me? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent. And made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as disturbing death. Some began to spit on him, to cover his face, and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out to the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately, the rooster. A second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster grows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. The first thing we want to see in verses 53 to 65 is that our Lord was rejected by the religious leaders of his day. As we said, verses 53 to 65 show us Jesus on trial before the religious leaders. Verse 53, the soldiers who arrested Jesus takes him to the high priest. The high priest was the highest ranking religious leader in Judaism at the time in ancient Israel. But notice now in verse 53, all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. This group is called the council or the, the Sanhedrin. They were the highest religious court in Israel. And they're gathering to try Jesus because they're seeking a way to put him to death. Notice verse 55. It tells us they were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death without sin. 
perfectly righteous. Verse 56, even when they lied, they couldn't get their stories right. They couldn't match it up. For many bore false witnesses against him, but their testimony did not agree. Now, you would think if you had just a little bit of humility and a little bit of insecurity, when you told a lie and he told a lie and your lies didn't match, you might step back a little bit. But they kept on looking for lies. Notice in verses 57 to 59, they now try to focus their charges on something Jesus had said about the temple. Now, this is important. We find the original story, turn with me over in John chapter 2, verses 18 to 21. There, fairly early on in Jesus's ministry, at least in terms of how John records things, Jesus did have some things to say about the temple, some vital and profound things to say about the temple. And like this time where he's on trial, it's the time of Passover, he's in Jerusalem, he's preaching and teaching, he has run the money changers out of the temple, and it's in that context where he's got everybody's full attention that Jesus says the words of John chapter 2, verses 18 to 21. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. In other words, he was speaking about the resurrection. He was using the temple as a kind of symbol for what would, be ha what would happen at the end of his earthly life and ministry when his own body would be pierced and broken, when he would shed his own blood on Calvary's cross, when he would die an actual physical death, death in the place of sinners for our sins and remain in the grave three days. On the third day, the grave clothes would be removed. The stone rolled away. And the son of God in majesty and power would rise from the dead. A resurrected temple is what he had in view. Now here's, here's what's staggering. They missed all of that. They missed it. They didn't, they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. And, and they would even go on to put him on trial for that teaching. And not only on trial for that teaching, but if we went back in Mark chapter 15, when he's on the cross, they would mock him for that teaching. Mark 15, 29 and 30, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Unbelief will have you ignorant in the streets. Unbelief will have you talking crazy in the streets. They missed the real meaning of Jesus' words. They regarded it as a blasphemy against the place of worship. But he was trying to help them see that the place of worship wasn't properly a stone temple, but him. He was the one they were to gather to to exalt, to praise, to magnify. His body would be given for our sins, their sins and ours. They didn't understand him at the time. And they don't understand it at the trial. They rejected verse 59, Mark, Mark chapter 14, verse 59. And even about this testimony, as they're lying on him, they did not agree. They missed one of the greatest truths of all creation. Now, when the false witnesses all fail, 
the, the, the high priest, notice he changes strategies. He goes from looking for testimony to condemn Jesus to now questioning Jesus directly. Reminds me of that scene. Some of y'all are old enough to remember the movie A Few Good Men. Well, only about two of y'all. <laughs> All right, show of hands. Help, help an old preacher out. A Few Good Men with Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson. Tom Cruise is the, a military attorney, and a guy has been killed through some hazing, basically. Uh, and he's investigating that death, and he's got all this evidence, but he doesn't quite, the stories are, are not matching up. He doesn't quite convict uh, the guy, and he's going after their commanding officer who authorized the, the hit, as it were. So he puts him on, on trial. He puts him on the stands, and he's taking this big risk. His whole career is at risk. He's questioning this decorated officer, and, and, and he's got this strategy. He said, I think this guy wants to tell me the truth. I think he wants to say that he did it, and, and I'm going to ask the question. And the whole thing, the, the climax of the story is building up to this point where Cruz asks him the question, did you order the hit? Just says, don't answer that. Did you order the hit? Don't answer that. Did you order the hit? And Jack Nicholson, the way Jack Nicholson looks with that smile, you, you're right, I ordered the hit. And he gave this whole speech, and, you know, my man trembling wins the case. That's kind of the scene here. The chief priest is like, I, my witnesses aren't standing. They're not convicted him. I'm just going to ask him directly. Now, the first question that he asked Jesus, notice it's verse 61, or excuse me, uh, verse 60. The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it these men testify against you? Now, pro tip from Jesus. If people lie on you and their stories don't match, don't give an answer to the charge. What did it look like him asking Jesus to explain these people's lies? Right? He's like, their they, they stories don't match. They're making stuff up. And he's like, okay, what you got to say about that, Jesus? As the old folks say, never said a mumbling word. Sometimes the best defense is a closed mouth. Walk in the truth and righteousness and let that be your defense. And so at the first question, Jesus just holds his tongue. But the high priest isn't satisfied because he really wants to get to the issue he wants to get to. So he moves on and asks another question. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Now we're at the heart of the matter. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It means anointed one, the chosen one of God. It's a centuries-old idea by this point that God would send the Christ who would save his people. And you notice here, the religious leader says, not only are you the Christ, are you the son of the blessed? That's interesting phrasing, son of the blessed. He's being very Jewish here. For a religious Jew, an observant Jew would not use God's name for fear of using his name in vain. And so he substitutes God's name here with this word blessed. Are you the son of the blessed? You know what? You can express a whole lot of unbelief while masking it in religious language. It is possible to look real religious while being irreligious. The Bible tells us that over and over, doesn't it? In texts where the prophet says, these people praise me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Or where the Bible says that, you know, professing godliness, we deny the power of godliness in the way that we actually act. That's what we're seeing here. We're seeing a religious hypocrite. We're seeing someone who has reached the pinnacle of religion. He is the high priest. 
If anybody knows how to do religious form, it's him. And here he is asking a question. Are you the son of the blessed with no intent of believing what the answer is? With no desire to follow the truth where it leads him. With no indication that he has at any point wanted to follow Jesus as his Lord and his God. How many of you know there are a lot of high priests in the world? A lot of religious sounding folks asking religious questions, but they don't believe. He asked Jesus this question, are you the son of the blessed? Are you the Christ? And you may be here this morning and you're not yet a Christian. And we welcome you. We can't think of any place we would rather you to be than with us this morning. You are welcome here. And guess what? Your questions are welcome here. You, you may have the same questions that the high priest is asking. Is Jesus really the Savior? Do I really need a Savior? Why do I need a Savior? Is Jesus really the Son of God? And what does that mean? Those are all great questions. Ask them. But ask them with a sincere heart. To really know the truth and to believe the truth and to give yourself over to the truth. Don't ask them like a hypocrite. Don't ask them as a kind of self-defense. Let me ask these Christians all these questions. Get them off my case. Let me ask these folks these questions. Try to stump them so I don't have to think about my life. If you'll pardon me for being so direct, that's foolish. That's not wise. So if you hit this morning, you're not yet a Christian and you have these questions, this is the place to answer those questions. This is the book to answer those questions. Keep listening. Keep watching what Jesus does, what Jesus says, and how this all plays out in his life. Keep watching and listening with an, with an honest heart. Because, beloved, the thing that would prompt you to ask these questions without a desire to actually believe the answer, whatever those things are, those are idols. Those are things that have put themselves in the place of the true God and are working and serving in your life as if they were your God. Turn from that. Don't give yourself to that. Give yourself to the truth. And notice, for the first time, Jesus breaks his silence in the scene. Verse 62, and Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, there are people in the world who claim that Jesus never claimed to be God. Memorize this verse. Memorize this verse. He's asked very plainly, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of the Blessed? He says in two words, I am. Nothing fancy, just straight. Oh, okay, there's a question that I can answer. I am the Christ. I am the son of the blessed. He makes himself to be in saying I am essentially God. This is why the high priest tears his clothes and accuses him of blasphemy. The whole context is screaming that Jesus knows who he is. He knows why he has come. The entire context is screaming that this one is the unique son of God. God the son come in the flesh to rescue sinners from their sin. He knows it. And even at the threat of his life, he owns it. For our salvation. For our redemption. But, but verse 62 goes on, doesn't it? I like this. Jesus said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll see your question and I'll raise you some truth. 
and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. He is got in the back of his mind, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, where Daniel sees a vision of one like the Son of Man at the right hand of the Father who receives from God the Father, who receives from the Ancient of Days um, glory and majesty and dominion and rules over the nations. He says, I'm that one that Daniel prophesied about, who, who sits at the right hand, the place of honor, next to the power. Again, now, a euphemism for God. You're going to see me sitting there. You think I'm on trial now? Wait till that day you see me enthroned in glory with my father, and you the one on trial. You're going to see me next to the right hand of power, and you're going to see me coming now, notice, with the clouds of heaven coming in majesty, coming in glory, coming in that Shekinah. Oh, you're going to see me. You don't see me now, but you're going to see me. You're going to see me when I split the, split the sky. You're going to see me when the trumpet sounds. You're going to see me when I descend arrayed in brightness and glory and beauty. And you're going to see me at the tribunal. You're going to see me at that day of judgment. Go ahead and have your little moment. Go ahead and have your little moment. Because this, too, is according to plan. And the question becomes, beloved, do we have eyes to see it? When he's cloaked in our flesh and he's veiling his glory, when he's giving himself up for our redemption, do we see it? Do we recognize it? Do we view him with the eyes of faith and believe on him? Beloved, it's a sad truth about life that sometimes people don't want what God promises to give. God promised to give his people a savior. He promised through that savior to give his people an eternal kingdom. He promised in that kingdom to give them everlasting righteousness, to bring them into a feast eternal. And they rejected. First, the high priest condemns Jesus, gets all dramatic, tears his clothes. He puts an end to witnesses and calls for a verdict. Then notice all the rest of them join right in. They all condemned him as deserving death. They all refers to everyone mentioned in verse 53. All the, all the high priests, all of the religious leaders, the whole council condemn him as guilty of death. The Roman soldiers get in on it in verse 65. They beat him. Others spat on him and they covered their face and they struck him, saying to him, prophesy. Everyone who should have received Jesus actually rejected him. Everyone who should have received forgiveness of sin spat on him instead. Everyone who should have entered a new relationship with God in this scene chose separation from God. They were offered salvation, but they mocked the offer and spat on the Son of God. Those are mistakes that should never be repeated. So you hear this morning, don't reject Jesus. Don't mock him or spit upon him figuratively. Don't esteem him lightly. You too will see him. The whole world will see him when he comes in his glory. And you too will have to give an account for your life on the day of judgment. And there will only be one of two verdicts. 
eternal condemnation in hell for a life lived in sin and rebellion against God? Or eternal life and eternal love and eternal joy in the kingdom of God the Father through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? So if you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian. Today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your heart. Do not look away from this Jesus. Know that he was crucified for you personally, that his sin or your sins were nailed to his cross, that he bore your sins for your salvation so that you would not be judged by God for your sins. And he rose from the grave three days later for your righteousness, for your justification, for your eternal life. Think of what Jesus has defeated. He's defeated your sin. He's defeated your fear of rejection. He has defeated the grave. He has defeated Satan. He has defeated every enemy. And they will be made to be his footstools. What victory there is in Jesus. Believe in him this morning. Trust him. Put your faith in him. Live forever with him and for him. I've been a Christian now a long time. And there has not been a single day where I have woken up and regretted trusting Jesus. There have been a lot of days I woke up and the day was hard, even before it got started. But I've never regretted trusting Jesus. I don't think you will either. Put your faith in him, the one who says, come to me. All you are weary and heavy laden, and I will not cast you away. You don't have to fear rejection with Jesus. It's not in the rejection business. It's in the redemption business. Come to him. He will receive you. And beloved, if you're already a Christian, let me give you one application from this section and then we'll move on. Let us never take our eyes or our hands off of what is most central to Jesus and Christianity. Let me say this again. Let us never take our eyes or our hands Let us not lose our grip or our focus on what's most central about Jesus and Christianity. The religious leaders in Jesus' day miss the resurrection. They miss the truth about his death and his his rising. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if the resurrection didn't happen, then, then we Christians are pitiful fools. We are false witnesses. We have believed a lie. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. But the resurrection did happen, right? And so now all the world is different. All of life is different. It is not as we suppose. Death is not final. The grave is not final. Jesus rose, so there is hope in every situation because of the power of the resurrection. So I'm going to ask you a question. Have you thought lately about the resurrection? It's the defining reality of Christianity. Have have you spent time meditating on the fact that Jesus rose and then trying to trace what that means for you, what that means for the world? Have you sat with this truth? Sit with this truth, beloved. If you're a Christian, you ain't never going to die. Not the second death. And that physical death that we taste is but for a moment. And in an instant, we'll be face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. I came back from sabbatical on Thursday, first day in the office. I was in the office about 20 minutes, and the phone rang. And it was my wife. She says, you need to call Miss Carol, our sister Miss Carol. She lost her brother. I called Miss Carol and talked with Miss Carol. It's like, okay, Lord, this is how we start. We come back from sabbatical. We get right into the real, real. 
And Miss Carol goes over to her brother's home. The body was still in the home. You know what he was doing? He was kneeling beside his bed with his Bible praying. That's the best way to go. He got down on his knees to seek the face of Jesus. And he woke up looking into the face of Jesus. Christian, that's your life. That's your reality. That's your truth. Whatever it is to happen with us. On the other side of that little thing called death is glory, is Christ, is that face we've been longing to see. Hold on to the truths of the Bible. When so many are loosening their grip and trying to get other things in their hands, oh, beloved, I would for ARC, every member here, for us to tighten our grips on Jesus, to tighten our grip on the truth. As crazy as the world is, tighten your grip on this Savior who has died and rose again for you and me. Hold fast to what's most central. We need to keep moving. We need to go to our second point because Jesus was not just rejected by the religious leaders, but in verses 66 to 72, he's rejected by his followers. He's rejected by his own disciples who deny him. Now, Peter comes into focus in verses 66 to 72. If you're new to the Bible and the story of Jesus, Peter is one of Jesus' first followers, one of the what we call apostles, one of his main messengers to spread the gospel and to plant churches, establish churches in the ancient world. Verse 54, look back there, says, Peter had followed him, notice, at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. So while Jesus is on trial in the high priest's house, Judas, or excuse me, that's Freudian. (laughs) Peter, Peter is outside trying to fit in among the people who've arrested Jesus. Now, remember that Peter had insisted, beloved, just a few moments earlier, that if everybody else denied Jesus, he never would. Look back in Mark chapter 14, verses 27 to 29. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, he's quoting the Bible now, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You remember that from Zechariah 13, which we read this morning? I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, Jesus said, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Peter's a man of irrational confidence, isn't he? He had more confidence than made sense, especially since Jesus had just quoted the Bible. And said, according to the Bible, this is what's going to happen. Peter like, no, not me, dog. Not me, dog. I'm right or die. Right? Irrational confidence. Now, notice he's beginning to drift. Verse 54, he's settling into a cozy fireside position next to Jesus' enemies. Now, sometimes, beloved, trying to fit in with the enemies of Jesus is the beginning of denying and rejecting Jesus. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. These two are irreconcilable. If we're going to be friends with the world, we will be hostile to God in time. Now, notice how Peter goes from bad to worse. Verse 66, Peter's still in the courtyard. When a servant girl walks up, she sees Peter by the fire, and she's like, yo, you were with him too, wasn't you? 
And he like, no. Verse 68, he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. I love you. I don't know what you're talking about. What you talking about? And then he tried to slide out to the gate. You see there? And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. I don't think he heard the first rooster. I really don't. I think in the fear of man and the fear of rejection, all he was focusing on was getting away from what he perceived to be danger and rejection. I find it interesting that he moves to the gateway. He moves away, further away physically from both the Lord and the people. He's trying not to be recognized, and it takes him physically farther and farther away from where he should be, where he said he wanted to be. But the servant girl isn't done. Verse 69, she tells the bystanders now that Peter is one of Jesus' disciples. And in verse 70, for a second time, Peter does what he said he would never do. Anybody ever find themselves repeatedly doing what they said they never do? We can't be too hard on Peter, can we? And so he, he, he does it again. He denies the Lord again. And, and finally now, it's not the servant girl, but the bystanders looking at Peter kind of funny too. The bystanders in verse 70, I think it is, excuse me, looks at him and says, certainly you are one of them, but you're a Galilean. Now, I don't know how they knew he was a Galilean. Maybe it was clothing. Maybe it was his accent. But they're like, no, nah, you're one of them country rascals. You ain't from Jerusalem. You, you sound like one of his disciples. You look like one of his disciples. We, we sure that certainly you are one of them. Now, beloved, pause just for a hot second. It should be a badge of honor to the Christian disciple if the world accuses us of being with Jesus. Certainly you're a Christian. Certainly you're a follower of Jesus. Certainly you've been with him. You talk like him. You act like him. But how many of us know that sometimes when the world starts pointing us out as different, start pointing us out as Christians, we wrongly start to fear the world's rejection and start trying to dial down Jesus so we can dial up acceptance. Don't do that, beloved. Don't do that. Jesus says that if we are ashamed of him before men, he will be ashamed of us before his father in heaven. We stand for him. Be honored among the saints. Now, notice, he, 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 he's, he's, he's saying, I, I, I need to deny this thing. Verse 71, I do not know this man of whom you speak. That's the third and final time that night that Peter denied the Lord. Now notice, notice the drift. He's gone from trying to fit in by the fire to trying to ease over by the gate to now verbally and specifically denying that he knows Jesus. In verse 68, he claimed he didn't know what the girl was talking about. She was the problem. By the time we come to verse 71, he claims he doesn't know Jesus. Jesus is the problem. This is why the opening song says, we are blessed. Blessed is the man who what? Somebody tell it to me. Walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the seat of golfers or sit. Yeah, we're seeing that. Y'all can look it up later. <laughs> we're seeing that played out right here, aren't we? 
goes from walking into the courtyard with the enemies of Christ to standing by the fire, getting real cozy, to looking for a place to sit, probably out by the gate, disconnected from Jesus. That's not the blessed life. That's not the happy life. Beloved, there is no way to follow Jesus from a distance. If we try that, we will at some point deny him. Three times Peter rejects Jesus. And after the third rejection, the rooster crows. And notice what verse 72 says. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. I actually think this is how we know Peter was a genuine Christian. He broke down and wept. I think that's an indication his faith is genuine. For how many of us who are Christians, who have failed our Lord and come to see our failure, have felt the stabbing pains in our heart, have felt grief and sorrow, not merely for the wrong that we had done, but that we had done that wrong against our Jesus, that we had denied him and failed him and come up short even when we had had irrational confidence and made all kinds of oaths. And maybe like Peter, we had gone so far as not just to deny him in some subtle way, but notice verse 71, he was calling down oaths on himself and curses on himself. He was making a great demonstration even as he was denying Jesus. If you've done that as a Christian, then no doubt your conscience has been wounded, stricken, and your heart troubled. Doesn't mean you don't believe. The conviction and the shame is evidence that you do. Because remember when you were not a Christian, and you denied Jesus, and you did whatever you did. You lived the sinful lives that many of us have lived. You felt no remorse. You felt no conviction. You defined it as fun. Now, since you've come to know Jesus, those things don't give you joy. They don't satisfy. They sour. It's evidence of a genuine faith. So, do we weep over our sin? I hope we do. Do we cry when we see our drifting? I, I hope we do. We recognize that if we've been following Jesus at a distance, we had better close the gap and stay near to the cross. And do we understand that Jesus' promise in the gospel is still true? that if we come to him, he will not cast us away. Here's how you know you understand grace. When you don't understand grace and you sin, you try to hide it. That's what Adam and Eve did with the fig leaves. They tried to hide themselves from God and cover up their sin. When you do understand grace, you unveil yourself to God. You come to him knowing that he's going to treat us better than our sins deserve that he's already, in fact, removed our sins from us as far as the East is from the West. 
So confessing and repenting and coming to Christ is how we close the gap when we've been following at a distance. It's not actually how we remove our sins because those have actually been removed. They were removed at the cross. They were removed at Calvary. They were removed 2,000 years ago. So you're not trying to fix your sin problem as much as you're trying to close the distance between you and God. He already knew before you were born, before the worlds were made. He already knew what sin we would need to confess, what things would plague our conscience and break our hearts. He's just saying to us, in this time and space, come to me so I can heal it. Come to me so I can mend it. There is freedom, there is healing, guilt-free, and there is righteousness that I give you. And so, beloved, if your conscience is stricken, if your heart is broken, if you weep like Peter because you've been following from a distance, bring it to Jesus this morning. Come to the Savior who gave himself for you who was rejected by men so that you would not be, who has opened the courts of heaven for us all to come as priests and to appear before God clothed in his righteousness, sinless, spotless, through faith in Christ. Christian, keep drinking from that well. Keep drawing your water from that cistern. Don't drink the strange flavors of this world. Keep drinking this gospel water. Keep coming to this Jesus. Keep coming to this Savior. And I want to say just a a brief word to any of you who may be here and you have experienced rejection, not at the hands of the world, but at the hands of the church. Your pains are not necessarily even pains that come from your own sin, ways you've been sinned against. You know, like we know, that should never have happened among God's people. It does sometimes, though. What I want to beg you not to do is let the hurt caused to you by Christians keep you from the healing offered to you by Christ. It's a, it's a hard thing to realize that even when our hurt has been caused by the church, our healing is also found in the church. So I just want to encourage you to, if you're struggling with trust, if you're struggling with bitterness, if you're struggling with fear of rejection of some sort, I, I want to encourage you to take that fear to Jesus. He was rejected by his own people. He experienced what you fear. He experienced what you have tasted. Sit with him with him. Talk with him with him. Be angry. Cry out. But go in faith, asking and expecting him to heal. He will do it. And you will discover that he will do it in the community of his people. I pray that God will give you grace to trust the church again. Not because churches are perfect, but because Jesus is. You trust him most. So we should land a plane here. Peter's story is not over. Uh, you know that not long after the resurrection of our Lord, which he had promised, he sent for Peter. There's a beautiful scene in the end of the Gospels where Jesus works with Peter in his pain and his doubt, and he restores Peter. 
he affirms his love for Peter. Perhaps more importantly, he affirms Peter's love for him. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I do. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I do. He asked Peter if he loved him so many times until the protest that Peter made was not about, I don't know him, as in Mark 14. But Peter began to get a little loud and insistent, Lord, you know that I love you. The Savior's restoration in our lives is always completed. Don't worry about having failed him. Trust his grace. Come back to him. And this morning, perhaps, trust him for the first time. Confess your sin. Put your faith in him. Be born again. If you'd like to know more about that, see us after the service. Talk with a Christian friend who brought you. Um, I'm going to ask my brother pastors to stand real quickly. Pastor Dennis, Pastor Tim, Pastor Babatunde in the back there. Now, he told me I had to leave for sabbatical. He won't tell you you have to leave. Uh, talk to any one of us. We'd be happy to help you know more about how to follow Jesus. Let's pray to God. Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you sent us to save you. The son of the blessed, your only begotten son, your unique and perfect son to be our perfection, to be our righteousness because we had failed to be righteous in our sin and to be our sin bearer, the one who would suffer punishment in our place, which we deserved and he did not, but who would volunteer out of love to suffer that in our place so that your justice would be satisfied and your anger turned away from us. Lord, we praise you for Jesus. We thank you for him and we thank you for your spirit. And we pray, Holy Spirit, be at work even now to turn hearts to Jesus. And be at work even now to give someone repentance and faith. To bring them into your family and to bring them into your kingdom. Trusting that you love them and will not reject them. Oh, Father, help us to keep tight hold of Christ and his resurrection and all the truth about him. And help us to follow you closely. Not at a distance, not trying to be friends with the world, but trying to be recognized as different because of Jesus. Give us grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.